Welcome back to the Deeper Dive podcast produced locally in the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Washington, D.C. Here at Roman, sorry, here at Sacred Heart Roman Catholic Church in La Plata, Maryland. As always, today joined by Father Larry Swink. Good afternoon, Father. Hey, Bill. Father Jack Berard. Hey, Bill. And our special guest, Monsignor Charles Pope. Yes, greetings. Good afternoon, fathers all. Uh, we'll pass to Father Larry. Today we're going to talk about a little bit about what's in the news. Um, some back and forth between um, bishops and and uh, cardinals on um, on some Catholic moral teaching. Uh, I'm going to talk, as we always do, what the Catechism says and clear up any confusion that this has kind of caused. Uh, so, Father Larry, to you. Sure. And, uh, you know, before we begin this podcast, we're not trying to, and this is, we're not going like, to name names or anything about involved in this dispute. I mean, you can do your own research on this, but we're just, this is the purpose of the podcast is to bring clarity on church's teaching and help people live it. And um, there was an interview, uh, you know, this is the 10th anniversary of Pope Francis Pontifica. We pray for the Holy Father. And, uh, you know, a high powered uh, cleric was interviewed in an article. And, uh, and basically he addressed some of what he called things that dominated uh, Pope Francis' papacy. And I don't know if it's a fair statement, but he said, you know, calls to make the church uh, more welcoming to LGBT issues, uh, churches handling sexual abuse allegations, and whether or not the church should be open, open the diaconate to women. And um, I guess really here is he kind of said some stuff that um, got another, uh, you know, um, uh, cleric to, to make a rebuttal. But the one of the things he said is that uh, he was talking about like communion, Holy communion, and how we should be more welcoming to allowing people into Holy communion and said that a lot of times we focus too much on sexuality uh, when we, when we talk about, you know, mortal sin and, and some of the statements that he said, and I'll have, you know, Father Brard and, 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 and Monsignor Pope explain this more in detail is that, you know, he kind of said, you know, the church teaches such and such, and therefore, you know, we have to be more pastoral. So I guess once, you know, I'll start with you, um, you know, read, you've, you've kind of, uh, already did a, a thing on this particular issue. Um, what would be your critique on what he said about mortal sin versus grave matter and how that can be confusing to people? And how do we distinguish between what mortal sin is versus grave matter? And then following that, you know, who is suitable for going to Holy communion? Yeah, you know, I, I think that we have to look at the, um, he, when I, he, he made a reply, you know, uh, uh, Bishop Paprocki and others made some replies, and um, his reply to them, he, he made, I thought, some distinctions about uh, sin that, um, uh, mortal sin, that I think are, are really problematic in, in the column. Um, he seems to think that the Catholic fix, he, his, these are his, you know, kinds of words, his, the fixation on uh, uh, sexual sins uh, is out of proportion, that there are other uh, sins we should focus on. But then he seems to fall into some kind of thinking that somewhere in the 17th century, we uh, began to uh, codify uh, sexual sins as just always mortal. Uh, and then he makes some observations, and I want to read a couple of them to you. Um, hear from his his own comments, um, and um, it, it says here uh, <laughs> he says beginning in the uh, the seventeenth century, um, uh, but in the seventeenth century, with the inclusion in Catholic teaching of the Declaration that for all sexual sins there is no parvity of matter. Uh, in other words, they're they're all grave matter. All right. Um, we, we, uh, we therefore then relegated the sins of sexuality to an ambit in which no other broad type of sin is so absolutely categorized. And then he gives some examples, which I think are just, just simply not true. So for example, he says, for example, he says, it's automatically an objective mortal sin for a husband and a wife to engage in a single act of intercourse using artificial contraception. Um, this means that the level of evil present in such an objectively evil act is sufficient to sever one's relationship with God. And then he goes on and makes some of these, he says, however, he says, it's not automatically an objective mortal sin to physically abuse your spouse. You know, I say, I, I beg your pardon. Of course it is. Of course that's a mortal <laughs> sin. Uh, or uh, it's not objectively a mortal sin to exploit your employees. Now, of course, 
mean, the word exploit can be, you know, in the eye of the beholder, but let's just let's just take it at face value. Of course, if you're not paying just wages uh, and so on, uh, or, or what have you, withholding wages, that of course can be a very serious, a mortal sin. Um, it's not objectively mortal, he says, a mortal sin to abandon your children. Well, of course it is. <laughs> I mean, I just categorically... So again, I, I mean, the, the, there's sort of a, a kind of, I don't know the word I'd look for here, but a straw man, certainly, uh, that that somehow or another that the church exclusively sees um, uh, sexual sins as, as, quote, grave matter. Now, there's a quote from the catechism, I think, really worth introducing here. Um, and uh, you know, just, just to, in terms of what determines the sins that are basically mortal, mortal sins. Um, and it, it simply says here that um, um, grave matter, this is catechism number 1858, grave matter is specified by the Ten Commandments. Why? Well, because it's corresponding to the answer of Jesus to the rich young man. You've heard the commandments, don't kill, don't commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud honor your father and your mother. So the gravity of these sins can be more, um, more or less great. But in other words, how do we you know, come up with a kind of a list of mortal sins? Well, we begin at least with the idea of looking at the Ten Commandments and the matter of the Ten Commandments helped us to specify that, as to say, make specific what are certain general categories of mortal sin and uh, and so on so we can get into the the details about that more but i i just think that the the uh, the, the, the the good cardinal is simply uh, incorrect uh in his analysis of course we have a lot of different sins that we would consider uh you know grave and the only way that you could say they're not grave is if again the, the circumstances of the uh the person's full consent of the will and so on are lacking they might right. be knocked down to a lesser category of culpability or blameworthiness but they're still in the general category of being objectively grave matter right and uh so father jack you know you know look, looking at that, that particular um quote where it says it's automatically a mortal sin what would be if you were like a professor to this particular priest uh he was your student as a seminarian where would you mm. find fault in that statement um and then how would you correct that yeah i would say uh i mean he's kind of mixing up terms a little bit right so i think i mean there is i, I mean i don't know i'm trying to think but there's really no sin that is automatically a mortal sin but there are sins that are automatically grave matter, just like Monsignor was, was discussing. But, you know, even things like missing Sunday Mass is not automatically a mortal sin. All we have to look at is the pandemic in which that precept was dispensed for a time, right? When it was impossible to go to Sunday Mass. Now, that doesn't change what we proclaim about the the commandment, right? And that's where I think this, this mistake really the, the heart of the mistake really is, is that there are things that are always going to be grave matter and therefore always come into that broad category of possibility of grave sin. Um, and th we do it all the time. I mean, like we do this, this, um, discern I guess discernment. I don't know if I really want to call it when it comes to sin, but, but, but there is that kind of figuring out exactly if a particular instance of that moment is always going to be, but yes, it, it I would say, um, you know, he's, he's almost right, which makes it that much worse, right? Cause the, right. the greatest corruption is that of the greatest good. Right? right. And so here we have this great gift given out to, to humanity and the misuse of it becomes that much more atrocious, really. Right. Uh, okay. Um, gotcha. So, you know, it's just the re the affirmation of the church is teaching that there's three conditions for a mortal sin. And right. To be clear, sexual sin is mostly, I mean, I would say in most cases is grave matter, right? I mean, I think that's the thats the thing that people tend, it's not so much mortal sin, it's like they're disputing whether or not it's grave matter mm -hmm. for, uh, and so maybe one of you can comment on that. I mean, what, what, I mean, obviously this is a, this is a, one of the cultural worlds where, you know, these things that we're experiencing the culture where a lot of people are mitigating or looking at sex is no big deal, or they'll say things like, God doesn't care what I do in my bedroom. How do we, how do we kind of, how do we approach this in a, in a, and maybe in a, in a way for listeners to understand why 
the church would say that sexual sin is is a sin. And maybe look at it biblically. Anyone to take a, a shot at that? Well, I, I give it an initial idea, which is that, yeah, you you pointed out when we when we talk about something being grave matter, we're saying that uh, if we were just put this sin up on a blackboard, um, let's take um, because I'm going to use this as an example from the catechism, masturbation. Okay, this would be in the category of a generally speaking of a mortal sin. It is it is a, um, a serious matter. It's always a serious matter. However, full consent of the will and sufficient reflection can sometimes be, uh, shall we say, uh, you know, not not full enough that it goes into the category of a person's culpability being mortal. Um, let me read what the Catechism says um, on this matter. 2352 says, by masturbation is understood the deliberate stimulation of the genital organs to derive sexual pleasure, both the magisterium and the church in the course of constant tradition and the moral sense of the faithful have been in no doubt and have been firmly and firmly maintained that masturbation is intrinsically and gravely disordered action. All right. And it goes on to state a couple things. But then we come to a certain note here at the end to form an equitable judgment about the subject's moral responsibility. In other words, we'll say culpability or blameworthiness here. And to guide pastoral action, one must take into account effective immaturity, force of acquired habit, conditions of anxiety, or other psychological and social factors that may lessen, if not reduce to a minimum of moral culpability. Um, that would be an example where the catechism reminds us that something, you can put the word masturbation up on a blackboard and it's subjective or grave matter. Yes, it is. Because it specified one of the Ten Commandments, the Sixth Commandment in this case. But then again, if uh, there are there are people who really struggle with this and their freedom is strongly impaired um, and they can't get away from their own body or whatever. We could come up with lots of possible reasons, but at the end of the day, it, it could mean, although it's still a wrong act, it's always wrong, okay? And it should be confessed. One might not always be in a serious uh, mortal sin every single time this comes up for them. And that's something to be worked out with a confessor, all right? And, and um, it shouldn't be something you just decide for yourself. I, I've said enough just to give the idea that um, we're not always saying everything is absolutely always, no matter what, you know, whatever the Cardinal's language again was, it's uh, always a mortal yeah. sin, you know, and so on. Right. But then I, I guess to piggyback that, you know, um, things like homosexual activity would always be grave, would be grave matter. Right. And, and, and also, I mean, not that he was wrong to say that contraception, if it is grave matter, but you have to be, you have to know, uh, have full knowledge of the fact that the church does indeed teach that. And you, you did this on your own free will. It can, it obviously it is a moral sin if those three conditions apply. So there's like a, you know, like, oh, there's a partial truth, but then there's like this error where like, then you're just trying to say, well, we, the church doesn't emphasize these other things, which we do. I mean, we, I don't think we've necessarily would, um, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know if I've ever preached about, you know, abandoning your children per se. I mean, I preach, you know, but I, I think we would all agree that this is a serious problem. If you did that or you neglected your children, there's, a, there's grave matter there. It's not necessarily specified in the catechism, but it is in the fourth commandment. It would be there as you have certain duties, you would, you would, uh, you know, uh, obligations that you need to abide by as a parent. And if you fail to do them, it's a grave, uh, problem. And it is something um, that does get addressed, just to throw that out there, that like we do regularly talk about it, though, right? And right. Maybe not in the confessional or, or even from the pulpit, but I mean, right. every pre-cana, it's, it's in that, uh, you know, what do they call it? The uh, the interview or whatever it's called, the interrogatory. It's, it's do you have any natural obligations to children from another union? Like, we're, we do bring it up. We just don't always, it's not always prudent to be speaking about the issue from the pulpit, right? Mm. Right, right. And yeah, so they, so let's tie this in with the, with the Eucharist, you know, and I think this is where, um, though the one, uh, cleric was like, look, we have to be a little bit stronger about how we speak about the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, the quote that was made here, he says, and this is not, this isn't the one who, who, you know, kind of defended the Eucharist. And I think the one was trying to, you know, not make light, but he kind of went a little too far. I think he says, my problem is we have, um, 
we have caste violations for which we need to go to the Eucharist or need to go to confession first, largely in terms of sexual things. And then he goes on to say, we don't say it's automatically a moral sin to discriminate against somebody. We don't say it's automatically a moral sin to rip off your employees or exploit them. And we don't say it's automatically a moral sin to mistreat your children or your spouse. Those are very serious elements of the moral life, but we don't automatically say these are mortal sins. It springs from this notion that comes from us from, the, as we said, the 16th century. Um, and then he, he goes on to, to say a little bit in another part um, where he, he, he speaks, uh, he says, the Eucharist is not a prize for the perfect, it's healing and medicine is for those in need of God's help. And that's all of us. Okay, so how do we respond to that? I mean, obviously, we're all sinners, but our teaching is very clear coming from St. Paul, is that if we are well catechized, if we know uh, the church is teaching on a particular matter, and it likes, let's say, for instance, if we were indeed were to, um, you know, if we were to uh, seriously discriminate someone or automatically rip off our employee, then we would have to go to confession <laughs> prior to Holy Communion. Ergo, if we were, if we knowingly committed a, a sexual sin, we would have to go to confession prior to Holy Communion too, right? I mean, that, that would be, I mean, it's, it's using this automatically. We don't say automatically, but I think there's the problem with that is we don't really say it's automatically a mortal sin anyway with sexual sins, but we're just saying, once again, to clarify what needs to be said is if we did something grave and we knew it was wrong and we did it with our own free will and the three conditions were there, we, we shouldn't go to communion. So uh, how do you explain to, you know, the lay Catholic about how, you know, uh, why that is and, and why we have to, you know, be conscious of, of not going to communion with grave sin and, and so forth and why it's good for us to abstain and go to con confession first, either of you. Well, you know, I, I would certainly begin by just saying to uh, the, the, the notion that the community isn't a prize for the perfect, but, you know, but medicine for the sinner. Well, that's, that sounds lovely, but it's not really accurate or biblical. Um, it just sounds lovely. Um, mm. I, I think that um, what we want to see is that uh, certainly we need the Eucharist to strengthen us. But what St. Paul teaches is that we've got to be careful. It's like, let's say you, I have an allergy to penicillin. Well, penicillin is not a medicine for the perfect. It's, it's you know, well, that doesn't make any sense. For, for me, it would be a problem. All right. So the, 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 the issue then is Paul says that if you, if you re receive communion unworthily, it isn't a medicine. It, 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 you bring condemnation. It's the, it's, it's, it becomes a countersign. You're really the countersign. You're not in communion. And therefore, this can't be, you know, can't help you. In fact, it doesn't only not help you, it hurts you, it harms you. Mm -hmm. And so we want to, the church is a loving mother and she doesn't want us to take things that would cause us problems. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, what we want to say is your first stop is the confessional so that you can receive worthily. Now, um, Bishop Paprocki, I think, addressed this kind of thinking pretty well in his response to this cardinal. He said, uh, in effect, that Scripture is very clear that the worthiness to receive communion is an essential component of going to communion. Uh, that well, let a man examine himself, says Saint Paul, and and um, and so on. He says, if anyone receives the Eucharist unworthily, they eat and drink condemnation upon themselves. So uh, let let a man examine himself and then receive worthily. Now, the, what we see, therefore, is that that is biblical teaching. That is dogma. That is doctrine for us. That, that is what is taught. Anything that's different than that, so oh, don't worry about worthiness. We're all uptight about worthiness. Just throw worthiness away. Is not just a different opinion. Uh, it's, it's wrong. It's a, it's a heresy. It's an error. It is not what was what is taught to us. So anyway, and I think that's where I would begin. And then I, you know, I'm sure the other things, Father, you know, both of you will come up with. But it's you don't want to get people taking medicine that's not going to help them. In fact, it might even hurt them. Right. Father Jack? Absol absolutely. And I actually even going beyond just the immediate, I think what kind of the foundation of this movement, right, which is this Eucharistic hospitality idea, which is sometimes kind of thrown out, it, it comes from a really bad ecclesiology, right? Like what it means to be the church, right? Because we've, and, and, you know, the two places in which 
this is this movement, I would say, is big. And it's probably isn't true, but it would be Central Europe, so the German nations and then parts of the U.S. And both both of them have very Protestant backgrounds, right, in which salvation is entirely personal, which is not a Catholic teaching, right? We're not we're not saved on our own and we just happen to go to the Catholic Church. We are saved because of Christ and his bride, the church, right? And so because of that mentality, we're when we receive unworthily, it's not just what I mean, it is what Paul says, obviously, that we eat our own condemnation, but it's also because every time when we sin, we don't just harm ourselves and our personal relationship with God, but rather it's the entire community that's harmed. And so when you just ignore the fact that uh, my actions actually affect someone else, like if you just assume that it's all about what God, God knows my heart and so everything else is fine, then then yeah, this is fine to just, you know, your sin was private, nobody knew about it. And so therefore we just keep moving on with our lives. But when salvation is understood more fully, I think that it just becomes impossible to see this as like an acceptable understanding of the Eucharist, an acceptable understanding of like Eucharistic hospitality just doesn't make any sense. Um, you have to really kind of understand it as like, no, this is a participation in the sacrifice of Christ and 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 this is a sign of real union. Um, within the church, um, which is part of what the Eucharist is. Right. And, uh, and but you guys can I add you? something, Father Swink? Yes, um, please. To, to adapt, uh, to build on this idea of a poor ecclesiology, um, Cardinal Ratzinger, before being Pope Benedict, um, has written a, wrote a number of articles on the, the Catholic practice of so-called closed communion, which is this, you know, kind of a way of dismissing our, our thinking. Uh, we have open communion, but you have closed communion. You know, you you're not like Jesus. <laughs> you know that kind of stuff. So um, there is not, this not a Holy Comforter, Saint Cyprian. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that we have a um, you know this to take up this theme that a lot of people say. Well, Jesus had open table fellowship. Ta you know, this is getting I'm putting my air quotes up here. Open table fellowship with sinners, and so should we. And well, okay, here's the problem with that. Uh, he did. It's clear. Jesus did eat and drink with sinners and tact, you know, shocking. And, and uh, okay, but that's not what the Mass is. The Mass mm -hmm. is a family meal. This is what Cardinal Ratzinger is clear to point out. This is not the same open table fellowship Jesus had with ordinary meals. The Eucharist is a Passover meal. It's and not only eating wings the family. at, at but, the Super Bowl. It's not eating wings <laughs> at the Super Bowl with all your buddies. <laughs> but only the family could be at the Passover meal. Now, if there were two poor families, maybe they could join together. There were a certain adaptation. But the, the point was that this is a close or a family meal. Mm. Only the family and the household service. It, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's just the family. So when Jesus had the Last Supper, he had the 12 apostles. And uh, this was kind of, it wasn't open table fellowship. And this is where the Mass comes and is built on. The whole Passover event, the passion, death, and resurrection of Christ, and the meal—if you want to use the meal analogy—is um, the Passover, not the quote open table fellowship Christ had with sinners. Mm -hmm. Therefore, family membership is essential. So we can't offer communion to those who are separated from us because they don't agree with all of our teachings. And I would argue that when a Catholic comes up to receive communion, they say "Amen, Body Christ, Amen," but the fuller amen is specified by the church when you receive someone into the church. And their amen goes like this. I believe and profess all that the Holy Catholic Church believes, teaches, and professes to be revealed by God. And we have to get better at teaching every Catholic that that's really what your amen is. It's not just like, hey, man, I think this is Jesus. I'm really cool with this thing. And it's like time to go up and get the thing and be part of the, you know, this is not a uh, this. It's not just Jesus in terms of his body, blood, soul, and divinity. It's his teachings. It's his. It's everything that brings us into communion with the body. Um, and it's so. I believe and profess all that the Holy Catholic Church believes, teaches, and professes to be revealed by God. If you understand that, that's really the wider you know context of your amen i think you start to see why closed communion has to make sense and it's the only real way ecclesiologically and and even just to like to really kind of highlight that communal aspect <clears throat> I, I think of of scott hans conversion story right where he talks about the fact that he he went to mass to like debunk catholicism and then he realized that he didn't have to know the person next to him's name 
to know that there was a communion there, right? He knew that in faith, the communion existed and not just because he happened to agree with them and not because uh, they were buddy, buddy. And there's something to that. Like, and there's something that the Eucharist kind of expresses in that, um, you know, one of the bad things of sometimes, you know, the false kind of communal community building that we do sometimes I told, I tell my extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion, I said, don't ever use anybody's name when you're giving out the body of Christ, right? Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a, it sounds nice, right? And then what do you do when the next guy comes up and you don't know him? And, <laughs> and, and now all of a sudden it's like, well, I must not be part of the in crowd, even though I go to daily mass every day. And, yeah. uh, and, and that, what do you do with that? Right. And this is part of what this is, is that we're talking about a, a deeper level than just our normal wants and desires and likes and dislikes. Um, and I think it's important. Unfortunately, a lot of priests do that. Jack, the body of Christ. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Actually, you know, Monsignor Pope uh, brought up <clears throat> brought up a good. Well, his points are good, but the point of, <laughs> regarding the the profession that 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 our you know cate- uh, that our uh, people that come in at, at the Easter vigil, you know, say as the only lay guy here, I you know, I the things we're talking about, the the kind of sowing the seeds of confusion, is really prevalent among those, you know, every year that come through RCIA, um, they're very tuned in, you know, because they made a decision to be, to be there and to stick with this for nine months or however many months on once a week for these classes, you know, it was a, it was a real decision they made and they're really tuned in now, you know, because everything's at their fingertips for what's going on in the Catholic world. And that's something that we continually get, you know, questioned on is, Here's the catechism that you gave me on the first day that you know we walked into class, and it clearly says right here in this paragraph. And then they see, you know, uh, whoever, a priest, cardinal, bishop, you know, say something that they even know doesn't gel, and it's really confusing to them. And I think, you know, I find myself more as a not only as a as a catechist, a t- I mean, a, um, you know, teaching the faith, but also apolog, literally, a, you know, an apolog, uh, apologist trying to clear the muddy waters up. What, what advice do you, I mean, I know you all certainly get it from your own parishioners, but what, how do you balance what you know to be true versus what you hear your, you know, hierarchy talking about? Because we're not the worst place we've ever been. Stop it. I mean, I know, I know, right. But (laughs) it kind of does give some hope that (laughs) like, like, you know, St. Nicholas famously punched Arian, another bishop at a council, right? And and he didn't like that, so we should probably stop talking about it. But like at the same time, it's like we've we've done worse. We got we got the nature of Christ wrong. You know, this is this is really bad, and I'm not really excited to be a to to have to wade through this. I would love to be in a time where uh, it's called heaven, where we you know don't have to worry about uh, people being wrong and and all this stuff and going against God, but you know, God has worked bigger miracles than, than the, than what we're doing right now. That's my, that's my biggest thing, but I, I don't think it's the best thing necessarily. You know, I might also add to that. Um, <clears throat> I, I think we have to have help people to understand that the magisterium, the teaching authority isn't just the Pope who's alive now or a Bishop who's here now. It extends back all the popes and all the bishops, all the councils, so that um, popes and bishops can't uh, just say whatever they want and call themselves the magisterium. They have to be, you know, uh, in, in accord with what has already been solemnly and, and properly taught. Uh, so again, uh, and I, I'm very, very sad that lay people have to put up with a lot of this. I really am. And it, it, it's very tragic. But on the other hand, I have to quote, go back to quote St. Paul to them. Look, Paul says, look, the gospel I received, I'm quoting from the... I'm just summarizing from Galatians. The gospel I received didn't come to me from any human being. You know, it was infused in me by by God. Uh, but, you know, Paul received that gospel and that vision of Christ. It was just kind of infused. He did check it out with Peter. Don't get me wrong. He submitted himself to the authority of the church. But at the end of the day, he said, I didn't get it from man. I got it from God. Now, therefore, he says, therefore, here's the important. If, if I myself or an angel of heaven came to you, and tells you something contrary to what I have given you, anathema sit. Let him just be cut off. I have nothing to do with him. And I am very sad that our lay people, because we do have a lot of, um, of course, I'm not one of them, of course, mouthy clerics who just chat, chat talk too much <laughs> and, and may say things, you know, by the side that may be, whoops, a little error there, a little bit of, 
but I, at the end of the day, um, I do I do think sadly uh, we have to have our lay people. Uh, your 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 sense of the faithful that you were talking about is I think a beautiful thing, especially the ones who come through RCIA who may have a sense that won't sound right. And uh, they're, they, if their hackles are up like that, they better square it with the teachings of the church, and they shouldn't have to, but it is something that unfortunately is necessary today. Yeah, I mean, I've shared it with Father Jack and Father Larry many times, and they were actually there personally for, for I think, one of one of them. But we did have a very a, a great line from one of our uh, RCA folks a couple years ago. He was leaving one denomina- one Christian denomination because um, he had, uh, I guess, reached his <laughs> this boiling point with them. And you know, came over, and there was a uh, one, probably an infamous uh, midair press conference that happened. Uh, with, <laughs> and um, he asked straight up, he's like, you know, I got to ask you, am I trading one, you know, bowl of nuts for another? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I laughed, and I said, yeah, maybe. <laughs> but you know, of course, <laughs> there is the there is the truth and everything. But it it was just it it really struck me like I, I can. You know, I I understand where he was coming from. Yeah. So change this is changing the not that necessarily the direction of the conversation, but another thing that I think could tie in here is um because one of the religious sisters where I did mass this morning with the uh, sister servants of of the Lord uh, uh, brought up is that um call them what you really you bring, call them, Father, the blue nuns. Yeah. Okay. The blue nuns. <laughs> And the word disorder, and I just wanted your your take on this and how do we talk about this? And it says, um, as a philosophical term, but to, I'm quoting, but to us in our country and really most of the world, disorder is thought as, as psychological. It's a terrible word and should be taken out of the catechism. On the question of the distinction uh, between activity and orientation, the point I was trying to make in the article was God was God's embrace of LGBT people like the church's embrace should not be based on whether they're sexually active or not, that they should not determine whether we seek to include people, reach out to them, look at them as fellow strivers with strengths and weaknesses and areas where they're doing well. Okay. So the question would be this is um, what's the danger. uh, And just, you know, this could be more of a theological point of view and, and things like, but to take out the word disorder and how do we explain what the church means by that? Uh, in terms of when they're using that word. And uh, because I, you know, I think sometimes we, we, we tend, a lot of people tend to throw out the baby out with the bathwater and we're not really helping people when we ex- explain terms. And, um, you know, obviously, I mean, I mean, I think the church, you know, has put what she does and, and we say that, you know, homosexuality is, is, is grave matter. Uh, what are your thoughts on that particular word? And then where could there be a fallacy in what he's saying? If there is. I think disorder is a um, proper terminology. Uh, by the way, isn't it funny though, Father Larry? People run around almost parading proudness. I have ADHD, you know, or something <laughs> like that. Attention deficit disorder. Okay. <laughs> I so probably it's, it's do not have that. I'm not, I'm not, you know, spreading yeah. that out there. Hey, man, I'm not depraved. I'm just deprived, man. You know, I mean, so anyway, so the point is that. Um, Right. We've, you know, we've got an inconsistency even there. But all that aside, um, look, um, disorder means that something is in order to its proper end. Now, I, I, I have I have a disordered relationship with food. <laughs> I'm fat. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, so I, I apparently want more food than I should should. And uh, so what, you know, what if I walked in the church and said, hey, man, I want everybody to celebrate obesity and, um, you know, obesity is good and, you know, uh, you know, all this kind of stuff. Well, you know, I, that's not smart. It's, it's a disorder and I need to find a way to maybe my metabolism is slowed down or whatever. I can come up with any, but let let the church just say, look, obesity is not good. So let's you know, but you know, you're welcome to come. <laughs> However, uh, you're not going to get us to say that, hey, obesity is good, man. <laughs> right. It is a disorder that is not normal. It's not. It's not. It's not well ordered to the good of the body. Uh, the your your relationship with food. Of, mm-hmm. You apparently think it has more to do with pleasure than than it does with nutrition. So, what? But but food is about nutrition. Now there is pleasure associated with it. St. Thomas says that God attributes great pleasures to those things most necessary to our survival so that we don't neglect them. 
But the problem is a lot of people say, heck with nutrition, man, I want just the pleasure. And this is true with sex and food and so on. People, they, they get they get off. It's not ordered to the end. Sex is ordered to procreation and raising of children. Food is ordered to nutrition and, and good health of the body. Uh, but we we throw all the, the good that's and we t- we we disorder. We focus on the wrong thing. We focus on the pleasure, not on the real point that the pleasure is meant to have us not neglect. So I hope that helps. But I mean, the point is that it's not ordered to its proper end is what we mean by this term. It's a good term. It's a philosophical term. It makes sense. It's uh, and we need to stop all this hand holding and hand wringing about a word like that. It's it's a proper right. term. Great, Father Jack, you want to chime in on that? Yeah, I mean, I would. I think that's that's definitely the the most important point is that is is what is our end. I would say, but I, but I also think that there, like, where that where that comes from, the desire to change that word is probably just as important because there's there's a it was a movement. It's been knocked down a moral theological movement of that basically had this principle that basically God doesn't does doesn't really care on a lot of these things, right? He gives this as a, as a, as a hope, right. And, but it doesn't come down into the particulars. Right. Uh, and, and I think that's where this kind of comes out of, right. It's a very minimizing of the supernatural. Right. And so what, what's, what's just, what does order even mean if, if it, if we're just left to ourselves, right. There's, it's, there's almost a, a, like a, it's much closer to deism than what we believe as Catholics. Right. And mm-hmm. so, so there, there can't be a disorder because then it means that we have to be ordered towards a God, but a God doesn't really worry about us. He just saves us in the end. Right. It's, it's a, it's a weird mm-hmm. balancing act to have, but it's kind of easier to then justify that you get to do what you want. Uh, mm-hmm. It's easier to then keep gorging on food. Uh, when, <laughs> you know, to use a lower example, uh, when you don't care, when you don't think God cares if you're a glutton or not. Um, right. And I think that's that it makes sense to me that that would come out that this kind of movement to get rid of, of, yeah, that word. Right. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a very dangerous one, I think. Right. And, the, and like, it's almost and like both you're saying, it's almost like you were saying, like, not eating too much is not a disorder. Well, I'll just keep eating too much. And, mm-hmm. If, um, you know, whatever, you know, sex is whatever I want it to be, I'll just keep doing it. And there's not going to be a conversion. There's not going to be a uh, movement towards God. There's not going to be, you know, going to the sacraments or uh, becoming a saint, <laughs> I, mean, yeah, I mean, to say the least. I mean, there's a, there, we're really like blocking people's growth and holiness by just making up new terminology that doesn't help them per se. Well, I mean, Monsignor, I know one of your favorite lines is, um, you know, what would you, you know, like, you know, what would you say to your, what would you do with your, if your doctor said cancer wasn't cancer, you should fire him, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think you've used that to talk about how sometimes in the church, you know, uh, a lot of doctors of the souls have just are just not diagnosing cancers of the soul as being what they are. And, you know, I mean, you know, we have, we have remedies for this and we have, you know, cures for it on like we do for many physical problems. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. but we do have these remedies, but we got to call call the the sin what it is and the sickness what it is, and and uh, it's not to say that you're an awful person. It's just saying you have this party that just needs to be healed yeah. and needs to be brought to the light of Christ. You know, um, no, I, I appreciate that because I think uh, that I mean, there's other areas of the Catholic Church we speak about disorders too. I mean, there's other sins that we talk about disorder. Uh, on the top of my head, I don't know. I think masturbation actually i think was one that we actually use that word explicitly um i mean that's another sexual <clears throat> sin and, uh, uh, but uh i think there's other there are other you know we've used this not just for that it's just it's not like we're picking on anyone it's just something that's out of its order right um you know i appreciate you weighing in on that um yeah it does say that by the way just to reiterate you yeah masturbation is called in the catechism and intrinsically Dis- and gravely disordered action. Yes. Yeah, no, and the word grave, gravely disordered action. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And the other thing too, I think, which, you know, we could talk about is, is uh, there's another quote and it's, um, it says, my own view is that judgmentalism is the worst sin in the Christian life. <laughs> that's why Jesus talks about it so often. Uh, if you look at the gospel, well, that, that's actually, does Jesus really talk about that that much? I think he has one gospel on that, if I'm not mistaken, where he right. says, judge not yes to be judged, but everyone knows that one. 
but I don't think there's been too many references to judgmentalism other than that in the entire hey, words of Jesus Christ. I, th I think he talks more about judging the law more than he talks yeah. about judging the neighbor, right? So like trying to get out of like holding yourself accountable to God is actually the thing he talks about when he talks about judging more often than when he says, you know, take the, take the beam out of uh, your own eye before you take the, all right. We'll say more about that because that's actually flipping this argument on its head. Yeah. I mean, no, but that's just it is he spends so much time getting rid of trying to get rid of this hypocrisy. Right. So, um, you know, that's so much of what he talks about is that, which, and what he's, what he's hating it, which a justifiable hate, which we kind of talked about before, uh, is this idea that, okay, you're going to use the law when it benefits you and you're going to be this religious person because it got you a little bit of worldly power when maybe it wouldn't have, but now you're going to use it also so that you don't have to love, right? And tr authentic love, right? So, you know, he talks about the, the corpon and Raka, all, the, all those words that we love to preach on uh, to say, you know, you're, you, you're setting this aside for God. Well, you're only setting it aside for God so that you don't have to give it away to somebody, right? And all that kind of, you know, things that we kind of do. And I would say it's similar even today now with the moral law. Okay. Might also add with judgment. You know, it's, well, it's funny, you know, when someone will scold you, uh, 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 you shouldn't be judging me. Well, aren't you judging me? Mm. I mean, you break the law in the very act of, I mean, of announcing this law, judge not lest she be judged. And then uh, suddenly you break it in the very act of announcing it, which is a kind of a dumb thing to do. <laughs> you break your own law. But at the end of the day, I think that when the Lord did the one time really that the Lord did, I think it's, there's two versions of it in Luke and Matthew, but, but the, it's one time that he addressed, you do not judge lest you be judged, do not condemn lest you be condemned. So there's, there's poetry there. There's a rhyme, the judgment of condemnation. There are, I think some judgments that are forbidden us. I can't know that uh, you're more holy than I am. Uh, you know, father Larry, uh, I can't know that only God can make those kind of assessments. And then secondly, um, I can't necessarily know for sure whether a person's in heaven or in hell anyway. I can't I can't sit there and say they're going to go to hell. That is still God's judgment seat. I can't sit in that judgment seat. Um, but on the other hand, the Lord, it, within moments of saying, judge not lest she be judged, says, he says, you know what? You can't get good fruit out of a rotten tree. You'll know them by their fruits. Well, that means I have to sort of assess the quality, the moral character of somebody, doesn't it? So in other words, he says, uh, you know, again, and he goes on to say, don't give what is holy to dogs. Mm. Oh, well, that means that requires me to make a judgment. Now, I don't want to even get into the whole language of calling somebody a dog. There's a Jewish background <laughs> to it. But the point is that in that very same pericope where the Lord is saying, judge not lest ye be judged, he then goes on to give examples that we better be discerning about who we're dealing with. And not just give holy things to people that want to just trample them underfoot and that will know people by their fruits. Um, and um, so you see this idea that I'm supposed to sort of be just in this sort of vapid, you know, who's to say what's right and wrong, except to say that nothing's right and wrong. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a very, that's not what the Lord's getting at at all. And uh, it's just so sad to hear a, a, a prince of the church repeating such a hackneyed and just poorly thought out position, you know, of that they've just gone around forever. Oh, you're judging me. I mean, this is a, I'm sorry, you're judging me by saying that. So let's just say, let's just take that off the table. And uh, Jesus did a lot of judging. He said, look, you, mm -hmm. if you won't take up your cross, you can't be my disciple. If you won't, you know, and he gives a, he, there's a lot of demands of discipleship. And the Lord is not playing around. He's, he's calling people to discipleship, which is one thing or one type of life rather than another type of a life. And so to say that all this means everything's up for grabs and don't be don't don't uh, conclude negatively about anybody's behavior is just a unfair and B it's not what Jesus teaches. Right. Right. Yeah. And I mean, in, in tying with the Holy Communion, like in a sense like we don't really know what's going on in the person's soul, but we have to help them know. But we have to tell them this is wrong. You have to make that judgment whether or not you go to communion, and you—that's mm -hmm. your responsibility. Yeah. And it's—it's. It's, I mean, I think that's—it's not being judgmental. It's like here—here's the tools, and you've got to—you've got to use these these tools as a Catholic to make that judgment. What's what have I done? Am I properly disposed to do this? And that's that's that. It's not being judgmental. It's just helping them to make that judgment for themselves so that they don't they don't bring harm and and they receive the Eucharist fruitfully. I think you know. 
So I think that's maybe a better way of talking. Let's not be in judgmental helping people to make those judgments because, you know, um, we could see things and we, we can be wrong at times. We, we might not know the inner disposition of the soul, but we can observe things and help people to, to know well, that. I, you know? I see you're about ready to step off the edge of a cliff, but I don't want to judge you. So I'll just be quiet. <laughs> right. No, yeah, I don't know if we have time for this last one. And if we run out of time, I know, Bill, if we have time on this one, but um, I guess the question would be this. So There's another question came up with this interview that people is diaconate ordination for women a possibility. And, uh, you know, because, uh, uh, you know, I think it's been very clear about priesthood is not. But um, uh, but I, I think uh, from my understanding and you guys can is that ordination of, of women is just off the table completely. I believe. And, um, it seems to come up a lot in interviews and they just won't let it go. Um, you want to say a word about this and why that is, and, you know, maybe a way of looking at that and why the mother church teaches this and, you know, so forth. Yeah. Go ahead, father. I was going to say, well, that question's big. So I mean, maybe taking all of it, but I would say, you know, I know I know that the question's been addressed a couple of times, especially usually in terms of female priests rather than deacons. So the, the but because every time it gets brought up, it gets not just like kind of like pushed aside, swept on the rug, but it's like everybody who studies it like sincerely goes, Oh no, this is absolutely insane to try and remain in the tradition of the church, uh, in divine revelation and hold this view. Um, right. and so now there's been this movement of, well, there were female deacons, which is, is, is a whole separate thing. I would, I would say maybe trying to stay away from necessarily all the, the, it's a whole nother podcast trying to say why, why that's not possible. I would say that, that the door always is shut every time it gets opened, but it, it gets reopened by people who think that kind of, that they can be the widow who knocks on the door of the judge until he lets in, uh, right. And, uh, uh it's kind of a nagging thing more than, more than I think any real sincere hope. I would agree um, also with you, both, both of you, but Father Swink, you mentioned, I think there is a distinction to be made between ordination of deacons and ordination of women as priests. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I think neither one can be done. But that, that, that aside, I think very the answer about the priesthood is very definitively no. Right. And two recent popes have been uh, asked this and they very definitively set it aside. Now, the language they use is very interesting. Um, the church has no authority whatsoever to confer uh, priestly ordination on, on women. Um, citing the example of Christ and the apostles and all down through the church history, even when the church went into cultures where female priestesses were fairly common among the Greeks and the Romans. Mm -hmm. So uh, this was this was not done. Um, and Pope John Paul, I think, actually used a lot of language that I think one could incredibly say is, 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 is that he's invoking infallibility. Mm -hmm. I think it's already infallibly taught by the ordinary magisterium, but he said just to set aside any doubts and in a matter that ought to be definitively held by the faithful, that the church has no authority whatsoever. He invokes his Petrine office to confirm the brethren. I think he checks all the boxes to say, look, I'm speaking now, and I was just uh, uh, John Paul, the guy from Poland. Uh, this is uh, this is the Petrine office here. Just let's just just let's be clear on this. All this conversation going nowhere. The church can't do it, won't do it. This is infallibly handed on to us. The diaconate is maybe not quite there, but I still think, like Father was just saying, every time it's been opened up and studied, uh, most recently even under this Pope, the, the answers kind of come back. It just isn't really something we can do. Uh, and the problem, I think, comes down to the word diaconia, which can be the formal office of deacon, or diaconia can just mean servant. It just, the word, it means servant. So the question is, when, if, 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 when Paul mentions a, a woman who was a deaconess, what does he mean? She's a servant. Well, maybe, you know, there's some theories that they help with female baptisms, which were necessary because clothing wasn't, shall we say, uh, much clothing worn and so on. But uh, at the end of the day, um, there's just no, I just hope that we don't allow any vagueness to just be a to, to drive a truck through it. We, we should be cautious on this matter, not trying to bulldoze through some kind of an opening uh, because it's not quite as clear as the priesthood question. So I, I just uh, I just think it. And by the way, to be fair to the current pope, you know, he was given the opportunity to 
widened the idea of married priests in the Amazon Synod and, and female deacons, and he didn't, he just set that all, all those things aside. Um, and uh, well, they, I, I, you know, you never know with Pope Francis, he sort of talks different ways about things, but at the end of the day, um, I, I don't think uh, Pope Francis himself is, this is, you know, really high on his list either. Father Jack, uh, any practical advice for Monsignor Pope, uh, since you have two years of experience with living with uh, Father Larry? Um, <laughs> do you need to, you know, do you need to help him out at all? Uh, I would, uh, deliverance prayers nightly are good. Uh, <laughs> Benedict medals. Uh, don't, don't, don't let him own any hot sauce. Uh, that would, that would also, also be helpful. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Duly noted. Duly noted. <laughs> We're all praying for you, Monsignor Pope. <laughs> Good. Well, thank you guys. I think this is very helpful. And I think it's going to answer a lot of questions to people that, you know, that, and the reason we do this is just to help people, you know, a lot of times people get their faith off the internet and uh, mm -hmm. we're just trying to help, you know, give some theology of what's, what's going on and how to help people to think correctly. And theology is faith seeking understanding. And hope this may help you a little bit to understand some of, uh, why we teach what we do is as Catholics and and why it's important to to stay firm and and it brings conversion. So I, hopefully this will, will help many people. And we we pray for our cardinals, we pray for our bishops. It's not an easy job, obviously, but um, one of their main jobs is to teach us, right? They they have the office of teacher, and uh, you know they're from the from the chair, and they have the, the duty of passing off on the faith, and that's our duty as priests and also the lady. So you're all we're all involved with this with this matter. So. Um, Monsignor, since you're the guest, would you give us a blessing before we check out today? Sure. Um, Lord, we need help down here, Lord. We're begging for your help and your grace and your mercy. So please do, in fact, now bless us and all who've listened uh, to this podcast. May the peace and the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come upon you and remain with you always. Amen. 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 All right.